0: Kaya, and welcome to The Curb Podcast. My name is Andrew Pearce, and this podcast was recorded in the lands of the Wajak people of Bulu, Perth. Sovereignty never ceded. On this episode, I chat with WA local Ben Young about his new film, Devil's Peak, which features Robin Wright, Billy Bob Thornton, Hopper Penn, Jackie Earl Haley, and her, a regular collaborator, Emma Booth. It's a thriller set in the Appalachian Mountains, and focuses on a family torn apart by drug-related crime. In this chat, Ben talks about working with the mother-son relationship between Robin and Hopper, as well as grounded nature of someone like Billy Bob Thornton. He also gives open advice about finding the right creative path forward as a filmmaker. Devil's Peak is the opening night film for Perth's Revelation Film Festival, and it kicks off on July 12th, with the night starting at 7pm at Luna Cinemas, Leederville. Visit revelationfilmfest.org for more details. We've got extensive coverage from the festival taking place this week, with interviews with filmmakers like Soda Jerk, Robert McCohen, Adam Morris, and Miles Pollard. To read or listen to those interviews, head over to thecurb.com.au. And now, here's a slice of the trailer for Devil's Peak, followed by the interview with Ben Young. Jackson County, North Carolina. My family name meant something. Outlawing was just a matter of blood, his hair color, and height. Methamphetamine was a living, breathing body in Jackson County. and Daddy was the heart. Everyone knew he was not the man you wanted to cross. You're a McNeely. We do not choose this life. It chose us. It'll be that way till we ain't breathing. You know you had goodness in your heart the minute you came into this world. You need to get out of this place away from your daddy because you did great work on clickbait i really enjoyed that so, oh well,
1: thank you oh that's so nice yeah. of you to say thank you that was that was a tough job
0: <laughs> bloody <laughs> hell i can I imagine
1: because <laughs> yeah.
0: that was right during um, like melbourne lockdown and stuff
1: wasn't it no it was just before so i got really lucky i finished shooting on friday and then the production shut down on tuesday far out yeah, so i just finished shooting. So I did all of the post remotely from Western Australia while, um <laughs> while, uh, yeah, everyone was locked down.
0: Did you manage to get back in okay or did you have to do like two weeks of quarantine and stuff?
1: I got back in okay. Um, yeah, I got back okay. Right. But I went back and then I had to do two weeks of quarantine.
0: <laughs> all right. I mean, I really look, I'm, I don't mind these COVID stories, but I'm looking forward to not having to, ask filmmakers oh. all about them because it's got to be so boring being like so what's your COVID story what's your, your COVID experience
1: I, I did hotel quarantine three times
0: Fire out how do you keep yeah, saying during that
1: fine. I read a script <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it was actually that the last time I did it was um, when I came back from Atlanta on on this movie, and this movie just about killed me, and so um, it was kind of nice to be alone. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, that's, yeah. Okay,
0: so you've you've thrown the ball out then. What about this film almost killed you? What almost?
1: Um. Oh, so many things. <laughs> it was um. It it was interesting. So, you know, in Australia, if you're going to make a $5 million movie, I feel like that would be pretty big, you know, Um, or it would feel like it was. Like, to put it in comparison, Hounds of Love was two, were were just under. And it felt like, in comparison, a much bigger movie. This movie, we had no time, no money. I was blown away at the total lack of resources that we had. So uh, there's over one day we shot 18 minutes that ended up on the screen. And to put that in comparison, when you're doing kids' TV, a big day is if you shoot eight minutes to put on screen. And and 18 minutes of that movie was all shot in one day because we just had no time and no resources. So it was a lot harder than I was expecting it to be.
0: (laughs) That sounds exhausting as well. Like, how do you keep your stamina up?
1: I struggled. I think that's why I didn't mind the hotel quarantine afterwards, because in America, you shoot um, 12 hour days as well. And so that's 12 hours on set, plus the travel to set and plus the travel home. You're looking at a minimum 14 hour day. And on top of that, it was freezing cold. So it was, um, it, it, it pushed me. There was actually one day where I broke and I nearly shut the production down.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: that's fair enough. I think,
0: but yeah, there was a scene where I think it's Caitlin, she's running out to the car and it's like, looks like it's the middle of the night. And you can actually tell just how bloody freezing it is. Like it just looks ah. absolutely freezing cold.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that was actually one of the worst days on set in regards to how everything went wrong. And I think we were about three hours overtime at the time that we had to do that. And poor Caitlin had to go and sit next to a heater. Between takes Because it was freezing Yeah. So
0: how do you manage Like, Because I imagine You probably had days where things went wrong On Hounds of Love But you're surrounded by people that you've known For a very long time uh, yep. How do you manage that with a crew That you're not intimately familiar
1: with Gee that's a good question um, It's a lot harder I, I brought over the cinematographer Mick McDermott um, Who shot Hounds of Love He shot this as well And that made a great a great difference. One of the things which I really enjoyed is um, Americans are so much more into hierarchy than we are in Australia. And on day three, me and Mick had a meeting with the crew at the beginning and, and said, you've got to stop calling us sir, you've got to stop calling us boss and you've got to stop offering us coffee. You know, we can we can all get our own stuff. And so what what we did is we just brought a little bit of that Australian we're all in this together kind of attitude. And I, I learnt very quickly that a lot of American filmmakers, I don't think, treat the crew with that level of respect. Mm. And so, yeah, we, the crew, were just fantastic, and would go, um, would go to the next level because we, we treated them well. And. Um, Yeah, and so that was it. It was just about, I I think the same can be said with every production. It's so important to remember that you're not saving lives. And all we're doing is producing a piece of content, I suppose. That's what they call it nowadays. And so um, you just have to treat everyone with tenderness and kindness because, you know, if one of the assistants doesn't come to work, the whole production can fall over. And so everybody is just equally as important. And if you treat everybody as such very quickly they, they start really going out of their way to try and support the, the, the vision of the of the story.
0: I, I'm curious, and as well, you're talking about treating people with kindness and respect and all that kind of stuff, and that, that is such a, like, it, it, it feels like a common sense thing, but from my understanding, that's obviously not how every single set is. But I imagine it's probably even more important for you, like you've dealt with some really heavy themes in your films and the TV shows that you've worked on, like some serious, yeah. seriously heavy stuff. And Devil's Peak is, you know, it's heavy, but it's not Hounds of Love heavy. Um, but no. I'm curious if you can talk about how important it is to have that kind of that levity on set.
1: So important because you just got to remind everybody again, like I said, you're not you're not saving lives. And and you've you got to remind people as well that it's just pretendies. I stole that line. And that's what Steve Curry actually did um, when we were shooting Hounds of Love. Um, I'm actually up here with him right now. Um, and uh, he he when we got really heavy on Hounds of Love, he would just like say, everyone, just take a breath. And remember, it's all just pretendies. And so sometimes that's what you do. You just have to step out of what you're actually doing and realise you're, you're a bunch of adults playing dress-ups, even though you're playing dress-ups with very serious subject matter. So I think you're exactly right. It's very important to draw the line between the job and real life between, uh, you know, after after you say cut. And so that's, that's really what, what we try and do and keep everything as light as possible between. And of course, if, if an actor you know, wants quiet time before they're going to do a take or whatever, you, you respect that, but then you do whatever you can to support them afterwards.
0: Obviously, on this one, you're working with Robin Wright and Billy Bob Thornton. Let's go back to your, you know, your formative years, making short films and stuff like that. You probably watched their films growing up going, Sling Blade, what a phenomenal piece of work, what a great piece of work, you know, that kind of stuff. What's it like to have now been able to work alongside them?
1: Yeah, it's just so bizarre. I'll, I'll tell you, I still... I never got over the whole shoot the whole you know month or so that we were shooting in atlanta i'd I'd be at home and i'd be doing whatever i'm doing and then i'd see my phone ringing and i'd see billy's name on there you just never get over something like that because you're exactly right i i saw a sling blade when i was about 14 i think and that was really when i first started discovering independent movies but in a way robin was even harder because when i was a kid The Princess Bride was one of the first movies that I ever actually obsessively fell in love with. And by the time I was 12, I think I knew every word to that movie by heart. And so um, it's really, really scary. I don't care what any other filmmaker says. When you're working with people you idolised growing up, when you've got to work with them and tell them what to do and run the ship, it's never not terrifying. (laughs) Even though um, I got so lucky, I was so scared of Billy, just because he always plays such... um, Hard characters, and you know, and he's just got that presence and that voice, and all of this, which he has in real life as well. It, may, it might be bigger in in real life, but he is just the kindest, most considerate, most down to earth human ever. And Robin's exactly the same. And both of them are just so respectful of the process, and so respectful of the cast and crew, and and just willing to. They're so collaborative, both of them. And so that was just such a welcome treat because actors aren't always like that and i've worked with um a, a lot who are significantly lower down the chain than they are who've been really tough and so to have two actors i've grown up idolizing you know on on the set that i'm working on every single day and be such genuine kind supportive collaborators was just mind-blowing and i still i still get chills i, I get chills when i think about You know, like Robin would just take us out for dinner, you know. And and we had Emma Emma Booth turned 40 while we were shooting the movie. And we went to some of one of the dodgiest biker bars deep, deep, deep into Georgia. And and Billy turned up, even though it was an hour and a half from his hotel. He just turned up in this dodgy biker bar to celebrate with us. And so they were just real team players.
0: It's nice to hear. Like, I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people and... There is still like I still need to at times kind of check my professionalism in a way where you kind of like <laughs> holy shit I'm talking to this person you know, and it's a bit like a couple of years ago I got a phone call from Bruce Beresford and it's like you know, oh, wow holy shit you're Bruce Beresford you know I'm having a yeah. conversation with this major person,
1: but I'm oh, curious I, for I, you I need to check mine
0: oh yeah yeah how do you do it how do you like when you the very first time that you're meeting them, how do you kind of go, all right, compose yourself? These, yes, they are Robin Wright and Billy Bob Thornton,
1: but I'm working it, with them. It doesn't, it doesn't get easier. I remember the first time I got a call from a bona fide gigantic movie star. I was absolutely terrified. Um, but I, I just reminded myself, they're calling me because they have watched Hounds of Love and they like it. And so they decided, because, you know, the movie stars get all the power, they decided I was someone they were going to let into their life. And so that I remind myself of that, that this person has decided that I'm not a hack, that I'm not shit, that I'm not yada, yada, yada. So I try and remind myself of that, no matter how much of a hack I still feel like. Um, I remind myself of that. And now what I do is I, I had lunch with um, both of the guards once, Alex and Stellan, at the same time just me and just them and that was terrifying and that was one of the more frightening movie star moments that I'd ever had up until that point in my life and so the first time I was meeting Billy I was just thinking of how I felt when I was in the Uber on the way to meet Alex and Stellan and then I just reminded myself that it went really well and that you know I survived one so there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to survive this and so I draw upon past experiences now (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) That's really,
0: I mean, it's, it, I find it so fascinating hearing how other people deal with that, because it is such a, it's such a personal thing, but it's something that we all certainly work in the industry, we all kind of deal with that. But with that in mind, you're also dealing with a very familial aspect. We've got Robin and then, of course, his son is in this too. And I'm curious if you can talk about that kind of push and pull of the relationship of directing a mother and a son in the film.
1: I love that question. It was really great because they'd never worked together before. And they have got such a fantastic relationship in real life. Like they're, they're best friends as well as, um, you know, in in our instance, collaborators. And, and it was great because they are both such open people. I didn't feel, I felt that I was welcomed into their circle. And so you know, and and it was good because Hopper obviously knows Robin really well, and and likewise they have so much respect for each other that both of them were putting offers on the table for for things. That, yeah, it was just a real collaboration. You know, there was no um, no no pissing competitions, <laughs> which I'd love to say there never is, but unfortunately <clears throat> there there can sometimes be a little bit of a ego thing going on about whose idea is the one that we're going to go with. And in that instance, <clears> there <throat> was none of that. It was just all about you know, we're all working on this together. Yes, the best idea wins. There's a specific scene,
0: which I think is probably the best in the film where the two of them are sitting on the couch together. And he says to her, I haven't really had a chance to talk to you, mum. And there just feels like there is, there is something that's a lot more than just acting there. There's, there's more than just two people giving a performance. There is, and you know, there, all the performances are great, don't get me wrong, but in that moment, there feels like something that transcends the film in itself. And I'm curious if you can talk about that particular scene and capturing it.
1: I'm so glad you said that because I think it's the best scene in the film. It was certainly the the, the best to... Uh, it was the most rewarding to shoot. And unfortunately, given the nature of film, the, the first assemble of that scene was about 12 minutes long because we just had so much material. And they have got their own history you know within their family dynamics and that scene was very close to both of them and so what what we did is we 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 spoke about some real life stuff and they spoke about some real life stuff and it was very honestly drawn upon and so you know there was no there was nothing in the um on the page about tears that was all real it was a genuine Yeah, they were genuinely drawing upon their own relationship there.
0: With that in mind, is film kind of like a therapy place for yourself and for actors?
1: Yeah, I I think so. I think, you know, probably if you have seen me out and about, no one would believe me if I said that I was a very insecure person. And I am um, hugely. And for me, drama was always a way of escaping my own skin. And I started as an actor and now i do it as a as a storyteller and that's exactly what it is it's escapism you get to focus on other people's problems fictitious people's problems and lose yourself in that and and i think that that's going back to your earlier question why i'm often so drawn to the dark stuff because i think in real life i'm pretty bad at expressing how i really feel and so as a storyteller i like going down that rabbit hole because I get to vent in a way that I don't get to in real or I'm not very good at doing in real life, if that makes sense.
0: When you made that transition from being an actor into the storyteller, writer and a director, was there a, a pivotal moment where you went, this is not for me, this performing thing is not for me or?
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember I was doing a film. I was 27 years old. And it was just a big part. And I was never good enough to get anything much bigger than, you know, like I think the most I ever got was like five days on the movie as a supporting, supporting character kind of thing. And when you're a role that big, you really are in lots of ways a a glorified prop. And so there's not a lot of room for you to bring anything to it. And I had two occasions. The last two acting occasions I had were, ironically, two of the biggest things I ever did. But I was so low on the call sheet that – you know, I didn't get any backstory, I didn't get anything, so I did all the work myself as to who I thought this guy was um, and how I wanted to play it. Then I got there and and I just got such physical direction from the director, you know, stand over there, run your hand through your hair on this line, look over there on this bit, and it just became so physical and non-authentic that I just thought, I can't do this. And as, as I think as a result, I just did such a bad job <laughs> so I thought I can't do this anymore I I'd, I'd much rather an involvement in the in the storytelling that I'm getting as an actor and that was in my mid-late 20s that that was and usually by that stage as
0: well like people would expect you to have chosen what you're going to do especially like if you if you grow up thinking I'm going to be a filmmaker or something like that like you think fuck it, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be a director. And then you jump into it and then you realise it's not for me. Like, yeah, at 27, people expect you to have decided what that
1: is. Was that really difficult to reconcile with that? Yeah, it was a little bit. And I, I kept doing voiceovers for years afterwards. But I was sort of fortunate in the sense that I had started working with filmmaking before. Like, I'd made a bunch of music videos by then and i made some films. And the whole idea was that I was going to become a writer to... Uh, um, right stuff for me to be in, but that never eventuated because the people who did want to make myself didn't want to cast me in it, which is fair enough. I'm not sure I would have cast me in it. I haven't been in any of my, my own stuff. So, uh, I wouldn't even cast me. Um, but it was a natural progression. And I think, and it was just around that time that I thought to myself, why am I even, why do I have an agent? Do I really want to be an actor? I don't enjoy it anymore. So what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Am I just too afraid to say, that I don't want to do this thing anymore that I wanted to do ever since I was a little kid. And um, so it was a little bit tough, and I still have those moments where I'm going, oh, what if, you know? Like, what if I had really put the energy into that that I've put into, you know, screenwriting and and directing? I I still sometimes wonder, because I mostly get envious that actors get called to set later than a director, and they always get home sent home earlier, and they also get paid more. And so I'm like... You know, what What if, but you can't ask yourself that because I get a lot of, you know, even though it's so difficult what I do and it is, and I don't know if it's just me, but like I seem to always end up on really difficult things, but that level of reward that you feel for surviving it reminds you that, you know, you're in it for some other reason and there's nothing that could stop you from doing it.
0: Um, If we can shift over to the post-production for this film as well, because I talked to Sophie Hyde about um, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, last year, and she did all the post-production for that editing and stuff in Adelaide. And so filmed it, obviously, over in the UK and then did all that stuff back at home. And I'm curious, I understand you did all that here in Perth, is that right?
1: Yeah, I'm very patriotic towards Western Australia and... um when I did this movie, I kind of wanted to do it as a little bit of a test. Um, well, not so much a test, because I knew the answer, but to, to kind of prove a point to the rest of the world, or at least the rest of the world who I have to deal with, that we can do it in Western Australia, because I was blown away after Hounds of Love when I got, you know, more international opportunities started opening up for me. Just how quickly all of those studios slash production companies slash whatever, would just write off everybody I'd spent my whole career working with. And I I thought that that was a really small-minded thing to do because in many ways a director is only as good as the people who they're working with. And so I couldn't understand why they were just interested in me and wouldn't let me bring a cinematographer and wouldn't let me bring my... Post people wouldn't even let me choose the cast that I wanted to choose, kind of thing. And so with this one, because it was significantly lower budget than some other stuff that I've been attached to that you know hasn't happened, as it were. um But um I was allowed to choose a DP, so I chose a West Australian cinematographer, same guy who shot Hounds of Love, same editor, and then uh, all the same post people. And so we did all of the post production, including you know music. We had Adam Spark from Birds of Tokyo and. Uh, so all of the post was done in Western Australia, as well as, you know, I had Emma Booth in it, West Australian actor, Nick McDermott, West Australian cinematographer, and then me. So we were the West Australians on the ground there. But then the entire post team was West Australian. So I really just wanted to prove that West Australians were as good as anybody in the world. And so, you know, if, if I'm ever given the chance to make another movie, um, touch wood, um, I I can put forward a better argument as as to why I should do the whole thing in Western Australia. Because that's ultimately my my dream, is to be able to do an international movie with international cast and international money at an international scale and do it do it out of Western Australia.
0: Because that's one of the things which I find really interesting. And it seems to be, maybe I'm not paying more attention to overseas because they don't pay attention to us over here in WA, but it seems to be a very WA thing where... You know, filmmakers like yourself, uh, you know, will make a really great film, internationally acclaimed film and all this kind of stuff. And then you disappear overseas and are only trapped kind of telling overseas stories. And, you know, there are a whole bunch of different people from WA, you know, who have made some really great films. And it's like, ah, come back, come back. And it's great that you've been able to do Australian shows, but, you know, there is that, I kind of miss that Ben Young touch of, of film telling you know perth on screen uh and oh, so thank you I'm yeah working on it <laughs> <laughs> um but i'm curious if you can talk about that tussle of you know being an australian working on an international scale while also trying to hold on to your australianness it's
1: really tough and i i don't know what the answer is but like unfortunately um you know financially it's just so much better to work overseas like the minimum fee over there is literally five times what the minimum fee is over here and it's in US dollars. So that makes working in Australia a lot harder and it's a lot harder to want to pick doing an Australian thing if you've got the opportunity to do an American thing, you know, over that. So I, I don't know what the answer is yet, but I'm I'm working on it.
0: I mean that's got to be really hard because you wanna you wanna do something creative, but you also wanna be paid appropriately for it. Like that, that has got to be the difficult thing of dealing with it. As you mentioned, you know, we call it content now and it's like, there is that kind of feeling of like content versus film, you know, like one is an art piece and one is stuff that we watch and it's got to be so difficult to
1: balance. (laughs) It it, it is. And this, this movie kind of taught me something because it was so hard. And, you know, as you pointed out, I didn't write this movie either. So, you know, it wasn't, I, am not the person who had the idea for it. It wasn't my baby. And, and it wasn't a story that i felt the need to tell so much that i sat down and wrote the script you know obviously there was a lot in there that did appeal to me which is why i chose to make it but you know in reflecting upon all of these things and to get back to more of what you were saying where you know i i am able to put more of myself and my west australianism on screen and all of that kind of thing because it's financially a lot more difficult to work as a filmmaker in australia i've, I've kind of made the deal with myself that I'm going to do more television, and that's going to be my job, and then every few years I'm going to try and make a film that just comes from me in the way that Hounds of Love did, that it, it doesn't matter what, you know, it doesn't matter if I make no money or I do it for free, that's my hobby, and that's my passion, is I'd much rather make movies like that, but so long as I can keep a roof over my head doing television, that's, that's going to be my goal from now on. <laughs>
0: With that in mind as well, it's like it's been what, uh, six years since Hands of Love came out, is that right? But I'm curious, like the impact of that and how well it's done, like the the you know, how celebrated it is. Of course it got a bunch of actor nominations. Is there do you feel like there is
1: that the weight of carrying the success of that film as well going forward? Be huge. And particularly because I haven't had that success since. Um Yeah, there is a huge, huge weight and huge fear of, like, will I ever do that again? Will I ever make anything that um, has that same impact? And the short answer is I don't know. But I also know where that came from. And it was a story that I really wanted to tell and I fought so hard to find the means to do it. And so um, that's why I'm really going to focus on telling my own stories from now on.
0: That's a perfect way to wrap it up. Thank you, Ben, for your time. Um, Thanks. I'm sure Thanks I will so see you much, at Rev. Andrew. <laughs> Appreciate you taking the time with me as well.